Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street continues to ride high on reports that the U.S. economy grew faster than anticipated in the last quarter of last year. Boeing's CEO appears on Capitol Hill as Washington's own Senator Maria Cantwell announces hearings as Alaska and United Airlines chief executives blast the jet maker. NATO orders $1.2 billion in new artillery shells as hopes for more aid from America to Ukraine continue to dim. As the U.S. Navy Secretary suggests Britain needs a bigger military, U.K. Defense Secretary Grant Shapps argues for more ships, as the Chief of the General Staff says it's time to consider conscription. And earnings galore. Joining me to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Chusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, who was recently quoted by name in The Economist, always high praise, uh, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Guys, uh, welcome back uh, to the program. And it wouldn't be Sunday uh, without you, Ron. Uh, walk us through uh, how the market performed. Uh, and how the group performed against that broader market before we get into earnings. Sure. Yeah, the S&P had a good week. The S&P was up uh, just a smidge over a percent. Um, our group was was a little more mixed. It was uh, really a function of you know idiosyncratic things to specific companies around earnings and other things. Uh, just a quick rundown of some different names. Uh, Boeing was down about 4.5% in the week. General Dynamics was up over 6%. Northrop was down almost 7%. Lockheed was down 6%. Raytheon was up 6%. Textron was up 7%. Booz Allen was the big winner of the week, up almost 15%. L3 Harris up 2%. Embraer up 5%. Bombardier down almost 4%. So I threw Bombardier in the mix because one trend you'll notice, and they kind of bucked that trend, business aviation companies did largely well this week. And then everything else was a mixed bag. Defense, on average, did worse. However, General Dynamics did do better. They do have the BizJet business and some other things. When we walk through earnings, we'll talk about it. The 10-year yield, um, it was up a little bit, about 4.2%. So that's trending a little bit higher. Oil prices went up a little bit. WTI was 78. And I'll give you one guess where Brent was, five bucks higher at 83. And one of the, <laughs> the big things this week um, was the 4Q GDP number that came out at 3.3%, right. which was well ahead of what people were looking for which gives more support to the idea. Yeah, okay, yeah, we really might have a soft landing. So uh, all in all, um, I think it was a good week for the market and a very, very volatile week for the A&D sector. I love that little bit of insider WTI Brent, right? Like the five dollar spread thing. So that was that was nicely done. Um, okay, so you did a great job straddling this, uh, Ron. Uh, you know, sort of walk us through the earnings on a little bit more uh, granular uh, granular basis, right? I mean, Northrop did take some charges. Um, you know, they're working on a lot of complex programs. B twenty one, which obviously is picking up pace, but ground based strategic deterrent uh, is over budget, and we've talked about it being in Nun McCurdy. Territory, walk us through earnings across the group and and what they tell us about what it is we should we should be expecting. Yeah, I mean it was it really was a, a kind of a mixed bag. Um, when you look at the the two largest defense contractors, uh, pure play defense contractors with Northrop and Lockheed, they each had company specific things. Uh, Northrop took a big charge on the first LRIP of B twenty one that was larger than anybody thought, with over a billion and a half dollars, um, and and I think that was I know that was bigger than 
what the market was expecting and that weighed heavy on the shares. Lockheed Martin is still having delays with the uh, Tech Refresh 3 on F-35. Uh, that, weighed on, that weighed on those shares. Uh, you know, Raytheon Technologies had a all, all in all a good quarter, good aftermarket numbers. I mean, kind of as expected aftermarket for commercial aerospace is going to be good, was good. They printed good numbers. And it seems like they do have their hands around this uh, uh, powdered metal issue um, in, in the in the GTF. It's early days. You know, things could still go wrong, but it seems like they really have kind of you know, framed that well. Um, Textron had bumper numbers really driven by uh, across the, their entire business, but the business jet numbers were strong. And I think, you know, of everything that kind of happened this week, going into this, there was a... Uh, a growing camp on Wong's Wall Street that was becoming very bearish on business aviation. And it just turns out this is not the case. Business aviation is just kind of normalizing back to a growth trajectory that it was on before COVID. Uh, you know, you, you had you, you had 10 years of deadness in business aviation. And then in 2018, in earnest, we started a, an up cycle. COVID happened. Things went all over the place. Demand for private av aviation went through the roof. But Nobody could deliver airplanes, so it wasn't like the industry was oversupplied, and now we're just going back to that trajectory we were on before COVID. So, you know, on, on business aviation, looks, looks looks pretty darn good. Um, and I think those are some of the biggest ones. Booz Allen was the big winner of the week because uh, they came out and said, "Hey, you know, what? we'll probably go fifteen percent this year," and they're hiring a lot of people. So when you when you combine that, that that's just a lot of growth in there, right. the the personnel to, to to back it up. So the the market really really applauded that. Um, my sense is you saw the 10-year trickle up a little bit just because you know the GDP number came in better than anybody was thinking. So the soft landing kind of goes hand in hand with, well, maybe the Fed isn't going to cut quite as quickly, but that's okay because right. the economy is still growing. So, you know, that they seem to be threading the needle at least so far on, on that front. Um, normally, we would have Sash uh, go, but I'm going to let Richard uh, take a bite at this, uh, obviously, because of the Northrop uh, news. So, Sash, don't take that uh, the wrong way. We'll get to you in a minute. But, uh, Richard, uh, your take on at least uh, on the aviation side of some of these numbers, especially uh, on the defense side. And then maybe later, if you can talk about business aviation, it gives something for uh, Sash to sink his teeth into as well. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, first of all, the B-21, I think it's important to distinguish between programs that have massive overruns, but also that, you know, serious, serious delays and technical problems and whatever else. And this ain't that, right? I mean, it from all accounts, this program is incredibly well run by, well, the rather dismal recent standards of uh, <laughs> defense aerospace <laughs> programs. Um, it seems to be going very nicely indeed with the recent second flight. So what you have here is a simple question of inflation versus a contract mechanism that's not at all friendly to inflation because a lot of people signed contracts at a time where inflation was a distant memory from the Paul Volcker era of the late 70s, early 80s. Um, obviously, the result is, you know, the, the billion and a half possible losses, you know, right off, but also, you know, that not necessarily all lost, just a write off. Um, yeah, un unpleasant, but boy, it, the contrast with other programs is still pretty profound, including, unfortunately, Northrop Grumman's own um, GBSD, which does appear to have uh, worse issues. So I, I, I don't think this really reads anything. It, there's much to read into this. And of course, beyond that LRIP batch, it sounds like things transition to a, a, a more profitable. It's not like a, a T7 or KC-46 where an awful lot of the program just stays in money-losing territory possibly forever. So uh, not a terribly big deal. On the business jet front, of course, yeah, things are normalizing. That's exactly it. Um, you know, we've had these sort of crazy mood swings 
um, oh my God, you know, can't get enough now. Oh my God, things are falling. And it, it's sort of been all over the place, but things are normalizing. You know, they're better than where they were, say 2019. Um, not as white hot as they were in late 21, mid 22, anything like that. Uh, they're just, you know, normalizing, but I would argue still better than they had been. The, you know, total uh, boost that business yet industry has received as a consequence of the, the pandemic is going to be, you know, more than a nickel in the bank, but not transformational. One thing that I would add, uh, I'm not lawyering uh, for Northrop or for the ground-based uh, strategic uh, deterrent or sentinel program. It, its span is absolutely vast, right? So, I mean, any sort of inflation or economic impact, it's everything from a construction program to an IT program to a rocket program to a, you know what I mean? I mean, there are so many moving parts, uh, as Secretary Kendall points out to this, uh, even though he's recused from the program, that it's it's just worth bearing in mind that you're going to have massive cost growth, even just for broader economic factors, uh, as as we've seen here, right? Even before That's we get right. to the the performance, uh, the performance element of it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, oh, go if ahead. I may, you know, Secretary Kendall also made a point. It's also a real estate program. You know, yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Now, the good news is that because of that, it, you know, it's effectively the recipient of uh, a, a rather well the benefit of a gerrymandered political system. You know, no. it really can't be killed because no. there are so many people. You know, who represent right. these states, and this is obviously a place they put their political support. So, you know, two senators from North Dakota, <laughs> guaranteed supporters. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Didn't see that. Possibly Didn't knew. see that coming at all. <laughs> um, Sash, uh, well done. Anybody quoted by name in The Economist uh, deserves kudos. So well done. Uh, and um, uh, also use this as an opportunity for you to get, sort of give us an update uh, on European markets and where everything stands, right? No big companies reported. Uh, and what do you make of some of the uh, business jet numbers and, and your estimates and what they mean uh, for Dassault, given that's an important part of the company's uh, business base, as we saw from some of their numbers uh, recently? Um, yeah, well, thank you. I haven't even seen the Economist quote yet, so um, you know, can I send me a copy sometime? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, European markets actually were flat as a pancake last week, but there were, but there was a lot of noise at the stock level. But you know, the but, you know, the average of the stocks that we cover was was zero. Civil down, you know, 03 percent. Defence up 0.2. That's that's nothing. Um, but you know, where where were the moves? Um, to start from uh, Ron's first point, you know, the fact that RTX came out and said the gear turbofan groundings, the whole situation with powder metal is not getting any worse. That was clearly positive for MTU aero engines. Uh, they traded up 4.2% on the week. Remember, they're, the, they're one of the two big risk and revenue sharing partners on the GTF program. Uh, MTU shares got absolutely hammered last year uh, when the uh, news broke about the GTF problems. And our comments at the time were that MTU had been left blindsided by RTX. They hadn't been told till everybody else was. And we thought and con continue to think it's a pretty shabby way to treat a, um, a major partner on a program. But you know now they're actually uh, clawing quite a lot of that back. And uh, you know as long as the GTF doesn't get worse, that's, that, that's good news for, for MTU. What I would highlight, though, for you know the aero engine companies we're looking at is we've got this situation that we talked about last week of more aircraft, older aircraft being grounded. Um, it may be that the aftermarket net this year isn't up as much as people hope, because although uh, there is some compensation for the GTF groundings, some of the older oldest engines, and they're the ones where the OEMs really make the money, 
um, don't actually get kept in service for quite a lot, as long as we expect. This is certainly something we're going to be watching very, very uh, intensively. So one of the problems last week, um, the really interesting ones were stocks, you know, the stocks associated with Boeing and the 737 MAX. And there's a, a mid cap in the UK senior PLC that has pretty high exposure to uh, to Boeing in general. Um, although it's, you know, it's probably in about a quarter of their business, but senior was off 10% last week. And that shows you how investors are just doing the read across game on this very, very quickly indeed. Uh, and there's, you know, there's concern there that if you're a subcontractor to Boeing, you're just not going to see the ramp, uh, the production ramp at all. Uh, and if that's the case, then management guidance for earnings 2024, 2025 is not worth uh, the paper it's either written on or the, you know, the screen you read it on. Um, otherwise, MTU, uh, sorry, uh, Kinetic up a bit, which is, you know, after their training statement the, the week before, Babcock as well. So defence played slightly better. But overall, you know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a particularly dramatic week in the markets. Now, as far as business jets are concerned, um, I, I, you know, I, I think Ron's absolutely right. You know, this is a normalising market uh, and growth trends are are going back to, to where they were pre-pandemic rather than the sort of the, the, the post-COVID bounce. Um, I think Dasso's got quite a lot to prove. Their orders in the second half of last year were frankly really poor. Books to bills so far under one. Um, and that shouldn't be the case, given that the Falcon 6X has been certificated and is now entering service. Falcon 10X should be getting closer to uh, certainly, you know, rollout uh, and then flight trials probably tail end of next year. You know, we should start to be seeing hard, serious hardware now for the, the Falcon 10X. Um, customers don't seem to think that because they're not ordering. Uh, and I wonder whether Dasso is seeing this stabilization of the BizJet market at a, at a you know, pretty good level, certainly the levels that, that Textron is seeing, or whether that's passing them by. Uh, inter in interesting indeed. And for anybody uh, who does want to check out uh, Sash's uh, um, citation, uh, should look at uh, the story in the January 14 issue, Can Europe Arm Ukraine or Even Itself? Uh, and so you've got Sash quoted in that. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of podcasts is brought to you by Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Okay, guys, uh, now for the portion of the program where we discuss Boeing. Uh, unfortunately, another bumpy week for uh, the company. CEO Dave Calhoun was on the Hill uh, as uh, the Alaska Airlines uh, CEO said that he was angry at the company, uh, which has an all Boeing fleet. Uh, and United Scott Kirby said, uh, even went so far as to say that he would reconsider the order for more Boeing Max uh, jets. Senator Cantwell from uh, Washington, the Democrat uh, from Washington, who's also the chair of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation, has called for hearings, uh, maybe a somewhat more uh, charitable chairman to have to be discussing this, but still uh, it falls in her purview and anybody who knows her can know that she and Patty Murray can occasionally be tough on the company. Uh, Ron, start us off. How are you thinking about each one of these individual data points, whether the comments made by Alaska or by United or um, whether Dave Calhoun, who is getting points by some for saying, hey, completely different, uh, more uh, contrite tone from the company than what than what happened when Dennis Mullenberg was chief, chief executive after uh, the, the Ethiopia uh, and Indonesia crashes. Ron, sort of take take it away. And what, what does this tell us? 
I mean, I think in a nutshell, it, it tells you you have a lot of very frustrated customers. Um, you know, it and, and I think you did we throw Ryanair in that pile? I mean, they expressed um, frustration as well. Uh, you've you've got airlines that are you know trying to run their businesses. They have uh, crew planning um, uh, schedules that are based on these aircraft coming in. There's uncertainty now um, around you know when does the Dash Seven get certified? When does the Dash Ten get certified? So um, I, if, you know, if I were in a Boeing leadership position, I'm not, but if I were, I, I'd take all this pretty seriously. Um, you know, and, and as we were kind of talking about um, in our kind of pre-podcast remarks, you know, Boeing broadly has become a meme. Um, and, you know, I, you know, from one perspective, you might be, well, it's not that big a deal, but it is because that means that the reputation and the reputation of, of the 737 is migrating out into the consumer world and that that that's not good for anybody right i mean um in you know involved in 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 the industry particularly boeing particularly for the 737 um so you know it's it's and as as we've written um on this i mean boeing has to navigate this public relations minefield very 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 carefully um and you know it's just got impact on all of the stakeholders this impacts uh, Boeing employees. It impacts uh, shareholders. It impacts their customers. Right. It impacts you know the regions where they are. Uh, they're a very important company to the industry, to the nation. So there's there's a there's a lot of a lot at play here. Uh, and uh, right, if you're Ben Minicucci, uh, the Alaska CEO, right, you're probably last week you were probably a little bit more angry that Saturday Night Live put a gun sight on your company. Uh, you know, and and uh, you know that that didn't go well they could have done this as a boeing skit they ended up doing it unfortunately as a uh, as a uh, an alaska air uh, skit um richard kind of your your take uh, on this since this is at this point a little bit more of a domestic story uh, as well and then uh, sash i'm going to come to you in a second to get your take as well but go ahead richard yeah, I mean, I think United is the, uh, the really angry party, and understandably so, because, of course, not only does this uh, restrict their intake um, of 737 MAXs that they need, because they're they're pretty heavily dependent upon the MAX, they're even more dependent upon the MAX 10, which, who knows, will it even happen, you know? I mean, so they've taken that out of their schedule um, that damages their upgaging plan, puts them at a competitive disadvantage, say, against Delta, which is more heavily reliant on Airbus. Um, this is just all catastrophic and seems to be getting worse. And, you know, I, I suppose there's how a feeling so? that things, How so? How so is well, it getting worse? How is it getting worse? The idea that they no longer have the freedom to even do a ramp. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was sort of a, a shocking development this week, and a bunch of us were standing around at the, the suppliers conference in Los Angeles, and you know, it was like, can the FAA do that? Yeah, I guess they can. You know, it's just all of a sudden, you know, the government says, no, you may not move beyond thirty a month, and of course, or whatever the the current output is, although it's not the current output. January so far has been like what seven or eight planes. Um, this is a company whose hands are increasingly tied by regulators, and that's also true of Max 7 and Max 10 certification. This ain't working. This just isn't working at all. And that whole memification that Ron talks about, that's exactly right. You know, I've been saying for years that, oh, people don't care about the equipment they fly on when they book a ticket, you know, and that's historically true until it isn't. And I, you know, I, I gotta say, I think 
I was asked by a couple of reporters this week, would you fly on a Max? Um, and I, I, I had to think about it. I said, yes, I trust the regulators to do their job, but I had to think about it for the first time. And I think this is becoming an extremely serious issue. But how are things getting worse? Just everything over the past couple of years now culminating in this series right. of horrible event. Now, events. Meanwhile, every other managerial move from abolishing the strategy department <laughs> to, you know, absolutely putting the world on notice that they should order an Airbus jet because Boeing won't be doing anything new in the middle market. That produced an astonishing good year for Airbus in the middle market last year. I mean, everything about this. So the big mystery that I, I think is increasingly obvious is the failure maybe just at the top. You know, Boeing still has really good people, some really good jets, some really good technologies. It's just at the top, it's run by people who are grotesquely unqualified. So where is the board? Normally, the board steps in and says, this ain't working, even just on a pure financial basis. You know, just looking at the share price, that's all, nothing personal, share price, this ain't working. Where is the board? What are they doing? Um, and I'm going to be fascinated when we hear the results, you know, Boeing's results this week, what they're going to be saying, because, again, everything they've been saying is just this useless, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll do better. Right. It, there's no actual plan for making it better. You actually have to say what you're going to do to make it better. Appointing, you know, say, I don't know, a submariner or something. I'm sure he's brilliant, but I'm sure he's very useful. Does it have any relevance? Is it any change to the corporate culture? Of course it isn't. It's completely irrelevant. I, I don't understand anything that's going on, but particularly at this point with the board, um, I, I would uh, also say, uh, even though I have a lot of respect for Admiral uh, Donald, um, there have been, uh, you know, U.S. former uh, submariners on the board. Uh, Admiral uh, Ed John Bassiani was on the board for a long time. He was then succeeded uh, on the board by Admiral John Richardson, a former chief of naval operations and former head of naval reactors. Uh, right. And so no surprise that Admiral Donald would get called in here. And from the very beginning, on each of these three highly qualified men, you know, uh, the, the, the reason, the rationale was that the expertise that they bring, uh, the culture of precision uh, that is important uh, to the company. I would also say that some of this is overheated coverage. There are so many 30737s out there, uh, you know, that now everything that ever happens to an airplane that's made by Boeing is like a reflection. You know, I mean, it was a 757 nose wheel issue and it's like, oh, my God, it was a Boeing. It has nothing to do, you know, on a seven. I mean, the the newest seven fifty seven now is twenty years old. Okay, guys. So you know, the fact that the airline maybe didn't screw or you know screwed something up uh, should not necessarily reflect on the maker. I'm not trying to uh, throw them uh, a life ring here. Uh, Sash, uh, give us your sense on all of this and how it's playing out, and what does it mean from from your perspective as a keen observer. Well, look, I'm going to go. I agree with you that, that it's got a safe now where everything that happens with Boeing air, airplane becomes newsworthy. But that's the problem, isn't it? Boeing as a meme um, damages the company. It damages uh, how investors look at it. It damages how customers look at flying on a Boeing aircraft. So they make choices, but maybe not very much, but at the margin, they make choices to fly on different aircraft. It, may, it affects how airlines think about the risk of buying Boeing aircraft compared to somebody else's aircraft. But the only time I can think of when a um, an aircraft became a meme was the DC-10. It just didn't end well. And Ron, let's uh, go uh, around the horn on this uh, and starting with you. What is it you think 
we need not just to hear, but to see, right? What what does the street want to see? Because this is a very difficult moment, right? Quality problem affected some airplanes, uh, a whole variety of, of, of issues. But then we had the bulkhead, uh, rear bulkhead issue, right? That was a subcontractor to Spirit. Whether or not they've been making it for 50, 60 years is not as, uh, or in my view, is very material, but still, right? Um Walk, walk us through what what tangible because once you get into meme phase you're totally disconnected from reality at that point right um all you need to have happen is something happened to another 737 whether an a, an original gangster version a next generation version or a max and it it then starts to become existential for the company suddenly right i mean it's it there is a lot of things flying out there that are called 737, right? What what do we what do, what do you what do you got? Let's go just what each of you think we need to hear and see from the from the company. Um and at this point, are they more hostage to events than actually steering their own fortune ultimately? Well a, a couple of thoughts. Um and kind of back to you know the various groups of stakeholders, right? So let me talk about the, the investor group for a moment. Um investors want some predictability and stability. It's obviously very frustrating for anybody trying to run a portfolio where you have a, a, um, a stock as you know with as much market cap as Boeing moving up and down five percent, ten percent in a week, it just kind of causes havoc um, from a portfolio manager's perspective. And you know, they want stability. And so how do you get to stability? That would be, you know, fixing the production process and having some forecastability to what's actually going to be delivered. So many of the questions that I got from the investment community this week were, okay, so, you know, the FAA is going to put a freeze on their ability to increase rate. Well, what rate are they at now? Nobody seems to know exactly what rate they're at. We had suppliers calling us saying, do you know what rate they're building at? And it's like, well, why don't you guys know you're the supplier like you know why would we know more than you um you know are they at 31 a month are they at 32 a month are they at 38 a month is it you know where boeing thought they would be so i think there's you know questions around that and then in the investment community that just brings more kind of volatility and uncertainty around you know when investors bought into the commercial aerospace ramp i think everybody's cognizant of yeah the supply chain can be challenging and so on and so forth things aren't perfect but they didn't buy into this where every six months there's something happening. And, you know, and, and the question really becomes when you, you know, six months from now, what's going to be the next one. So, you know, from the investor perspective, stability, forecastability, that's what they're looking for. Uh, sadly, I don't think they're looking for the long term in the company. Right. I mean, you know, I, I think the investment community would applaud them not doing an airplane, which I think they've been OK with because nobody who owns the shares today, for the most part, is going to be here owning the shares in five years or 10 years. But when you have that shorter term, medium term view, it's really just around stability, forecastability, less volatility. Sash? Ultimately, the problems that Boeing has got are issues of quality. The dirty secret of the ramp of production that's been going on for the last 
nearly two years, but actually was going on before that, you know, before the pandemic, as Boeing and Airbus raced to get production higher uh, and deliveries higher. The dirty secret of that was that they did that by delivering aircraft, both sides, you know, both companies that had an increasing number of um, faults. And when these are, you know, when the delivery signed off by the customer, it, it's it's accompanied by a list of faults that will be rectified thereafter. But after the, um, you know, the aircraft's been paid for and they can book it in their quarterly uh, results and so forth. And, um, you know, if you if you talk to some of the leasing companies, they just say that, and, and this was even um, before the pandemic, the, the, the number of pages of faults on production aircraft had gone up from, you know, generally one page of faults up to, in some cases, 10 pages of faults. But they were prepared to do that because they needed capacity, they needed lift, and Boeing and Airbus could rectify those faults pretty pretty quickly once they were signed off. You know, some of them would just be niggles. Um, not, not all, but most of them would be. But once you get into a culture where <clears throat> you deliver aircraft and you, you get them signed off with, with faults, with, with travelled work, that is something that has gone very, very badly wrong with the production system of any company that does that. And that's the, that's the symptom of uh, what's gone wrong. And so to focus with Boeing for the moment, what I would want to see is two things. One, that a, what do we call it? A committee, a, a slate of major airlines who are 737 MAX customers do some sort of declaration every quarter about the number of faults on average that they are accepting aircraft with. And we can see that decline quarter by quarter by quarter. But I'm, I, you know, I think it's really up to the customers now to start um, marking Boeing's homework for it rather than Boeing marking its, its own homework and saying publicly if things are getting better and saying publicly if things aren't because that will put the, the maximum pressure on Boeing as a company and the Boeing management in particular. Um, and if we can see that the, the quality is improving because the airlines are telling us the quality is improving, that will be incredibly positive for how ultimately all of the stakeholders view the Boeing company. Um, the flip side of this is I think they've got to stop giving financial guidance because that's part of the problem. They've, management focuses too much on financial guidance because that's what they, they perceive their shareholders to want. And therefore, they're not focusing on the day job and they are letting quality slip. I think if they made a statement, we're just not going to give guidance for 2024, you know, it will be what it will be. But we are going to sort out uh, quality that would send a real shock to investors. But I think it would send an incredibly healthy message. That's my prescription. Uh, Richard, uh, your uh, sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. That's what they need to do. You know, look, we'll fix this. You can trust us in the long run. We're a safe place to park your cash. Um, <laughs> you know, this is an execution story, not a cash flow story. We do not think in terms of finance. We and guilty, we are guilty as sin of thinking purely in terms of finance. We should be thinking about our, our people. We should be thinking about our processes and building things uh, in a safe and, 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 and consistent way. And we should be restoring our suppliers back to health because clearly we've done terrible things to them over the past decade. I think Boeing simply needs to change everything. Will we hear that from management on Wednesday? I sincerely doubt it. Um, but that's exactly what they need to say. Do you, do you think the FAA is regarded as the important neutral arbiter that everybody expects of it, right? I mean, some questions about whether or not they've been too close to Boeing. Um, I mean, what, what's, what's your sense on that? 
Um, I think that's they're under a great deal of scrutiny. I mean, and having survived, um, you know, I mean, international certification reciprocity survived miraculously over the past few years. I oh boy, I just I, I just hope that uh, you know this streak of good fortune continues. Um, but obviously, they're under a great deal of pressure, both from international partners, from customers, uh, and of course from uh, politicians. Enormously, uh, enormous pressure. Um, and as a consequence, they have no choice but to be more stringent. And I hope we see that because the system needs it, frankly. Now, obviously, putting a damper on production at current levels is, you know, the only correct move they can make. And But I expect to see more. And when it comes to Max 7 and Max 10 certification, you know, exemptions and, and whatever, I expect they're going to have a pretty hard line on that because, yeah, their reputation is very much under the gun right now. And a reminder for our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Chips, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, that I co-host with our own uh, JJ Gertler. Um we're going to take uh, the next 10 or so minutes and we're going to be talking uh, about Ukraine as well as uh, British uh, defense. Uh, Ron, just really quickly uh, over to you. There's increasing uh, sadness uh, in many circles uh, that unfortunately for domestic political uh, reasons, in part also uh, because of opposition by uh, the man who's likely going to become the Republican presidential candidate. Donald Trump uh, does not want aid going to Ukraine. So now it's conjoined with um, a border funding and immigration policy. Uh, and so now the sense is that extra $60 billion, more than $60 billion in Ukraine aid as part of a broader package for Israel and Taiwan isn't going to happen. 90% of that uh, goes to American industry. How's the street looking at this? Is that a, a net negative? Is that registering for anybody or is that not really a factor? Putting the more morality of it to to one side. Yeah, from a from a street perspective, I think it's you know for sure seen as a net negative. Um, we didn't get a much much incoming on that. Um, we've had you know investors questioning where the budget was going to go, what was going to happen, you know the supplementals and so on and so forth. But the real focus, everybody's up to their eyeballs and earnings right now. So when when the dust settles and you know if this really kind of settles out this way. Yeah, I would imagine it'll probably be seen as a net negative. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's you know it's it's funding for the industry, I and mean, you know that that's always a positive thing. And if you know, if there's a hole there, then you know obviously that'll be a negative. Um, we also have heard from uh, prominent uh, strategists who basically said, "Look, I mean, you know, th this is pretty much the end of the of the you know Western-led global rules-based order uh, if we allow the Russians to win." And unfortunately, it looks like that's uh, going to be the case if there is going to be no more money. Uh, in, in, indeed, a great piece uh, in a brilliant essay in the Times by military historian Max Hastings, uh, who made a powerful case that you know Western nations just simply don't understand the perilous nature of the times we're living in. Richard, do you want to take kind of a quick bite at this before I go uh, to Sash, given how much, uh, you know, uh, British commentary there's been on all of this? You know, I mean, there is the hope uh, <laughs> that somehow in a few months, if Donald Trump looks like he's not going to be elected, then maybe his grip over the Republican Party lessens and their opposition to a deal that involves both the southern border 
and an aid package, um, well, is restored. That that or that is to say, their opposition diminishes too. That would be wonderful. Um, so, in other words, I, I think there's quite a lot of hope. Obviously, the catastrophe scenario is uh, well, Trump gains traction again and comes back and gets us out of NATO and puts the kibosh in any hope of any money at all for Ukraine. In which case, well, very simply, uh, Europe's got to get its act together. <laughs> That's all there right. is to it. But right now, of course, uh, given, you know, Speaker Johnson and whoever else being in complete thrall to uh, Trump's, you know, basically anti-Ukraine, pro-Russian sentiment, it's it's very difficult to see any kind of hope here. Um, and and right on the Washington podcast, we discuss this often that the the specific issue is the just the you know the the efforts that Trump is making behind the scenes on border, and that we have to hang firm and hang tough on the border. And we've heard from the minority leader uh, Mitch McConnell, why would we strike a deal? Our whole goal is to try to hurt Joe Biden, right? So why resolve this issue rather than beat him uh, over the head with? So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, domestic politics to this. Sash, from your standpoint, as somebody who's observing this, right? I mean, we have a NATO. I want to break this up into two things. First, get your sense on the NATO $1.2 billion artillery round uh, competition. It's not designed to go directly to Ukraine, rather fill the stocks for NATO members who are giving aid uh, to the Ukrainians. This is, you were quoted in the Economist piece on this. Can Europe pick up any of the slack that the United States doesn't fill and do it in really short order, um, lest the Ukrainians actually end up losing this, which increasingly looks to be the case because the sheer weight of Russian industrial production and what they're getting from North Korea and Iran, um, as well as the help they're getting from China on digi drones and the whole like. What, what's what's your sense? Can can Europe change the vector here at all if the United States doesn't pony up? Probably not. You know, I mean, uh, I don't. You, you said quickly. And that's what Europe can't do. Europe can't do quick, um, partly because there are elections and Europe is politically, well, at least politically slow. I mean, it may not be politically as, as fragmented as you think, but Europe is very, very politically slow to act. Um, can Europe do it eventually? Possibly. Does Europe uh, need to be able to do it? Definitely. And some of the thinking, but in my view, nowhere near enough, in uh, European governments at the moment is a, oh gosh, moment of President Trump might come in, in which case we're going to have to do it alone. It, are we, Europe, in its very, very broadest sense, going to be able to do it alone fast enough? I very much doubt it. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you want to see, if you want to see Europe come together and um, start doing defence more seriously than it's done at least for 30 years and probably for 50 years. You know, the catalyst is occurring at the moment. Um, right. 1.2 billion, 1.2 billion euros for artillery ammunition. Yeah, thanks. See you next week. It's chump change. Period. Um, do the maths. 1.2 billion dollars buys you about quarter of a million rounds. A quarter of a million rounds at the rate at which um any artilleryman will be using artillery rounds in defense, which is what the Ukrainians are doing, is 10 days supply for the number of guns that the Ukrainians have currently got. So we've got to do that 36 times more. We, Europe, and you're, or, you know, if the US are still playing, but you're not, 36 times more this year just to keep the, the Ukrainians um, uh, surviving. That's the, that's the brutal maths of it. Um, so, you know, a billion dollars doesn't buy you a lot of bang. Um, not not in a 
uh, appear war like this. Um, so, you know, let, let's take a step back at the moment. What can Europe produce? Before this conflict started, Europe had capacity of under half a million rounds a year. And that's produced from um, uh, about, you know, there's about seven major countries in Europe uh, that uh, produce artillery, maybe uh, eight, nine and at a push, <clears throat> but most of which have got had capacities pre-war of a few tens of thousands per year. They're ramping up and the, the, the tooling is almost certainly there, um, but it's quite hard to recruit people to actually work in an artillery plant. Um, most of them are, are in difficult, inconvenient places. It's not the most exciting um, uh, job to do. And it's very hard to recruit people back to the defence industry when the defence industry has been on, in a downturn for 30 plus years. So, you know, com companies that I talk to are saying recruiting is tough. Whether you want to make tanks or shells, it's not easy to get people back into the into the industry again. But here's the good news. With all that tooling, and the tooling doesn't change over decades, you are forging or casting a shell, you're machining it, you're adding a drive band, you're then doing pack and fill and putting a fuse on. You know, that's been the way that artillery has been produced for 100 years now. The precision has got better, thankfully. The effect has got better, but that's how these things are produced. Um, the capacity that Europe has got is about one point, um, is about 1.2 uh, million rounds um, a year. And you know, 2025, 2026, 2027, if governments started spending now, that's a big if, then you could, you know, we, you could probably double that. Um, but it, it takes governments to realize that things are serious, that they have to place orders now. They have to place orders such that companies feel confidence to expand the capacity. And, um, you know, then the flywheel starts to pick up a bit of speed. Right. Um, let me uh, take you. We've got about two minutes left, and I want to get your sense on this. U.S. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro um, made an observation that was seen as a criticism that Britain could use a bigger military. Uh, U.K. Defense Secretary Grant Shapps last week said the Royal Navy needed more ships. And then we heard from the chief of the British Army, uh, General Sir Patrick Saunders, who made the case that national conscription would be necessary for us to have enough troops uh, in a capacity um to use them, God forbid, if if you uh, needed them. Um, and then there was that brilliant piece by Max Hastings uh, that that basically said, look, Br Britain's military has been hollowed, uh, has, is a hollowed shell. Uh, and I'm getting this almost exactly right. Uh, that frightens enemies no more than it impresses our friends. Right. Brutal, if candid and says, you know, that the Western governments have been deluding themselves for a long time and are effectively sleepwalking into conflict, given the magnitude of, of, of the uh, nature of this. I mean, you know, Sash, I mean, is, is it worse to issue a rallying cry for action and not funding it or simply not doing anything? I mean, at, at what point does any of this have to change? Does a Trump election change it? Um, or, or are we going to be in a position where people are going to look at this and say, look, this is just not a big deal, especially once Ukraine loses and we can convince ourselves they didn't have a shot anyway, right? Let's let's get back to peaceful coexistence. I really hope it doesn't get to that, but that's a, that has to be one of the options. And it's not a wild option either. <clears throat> I think the Trump election um, will have quite a shocking effect for some European countries because certainly in the last presidency, he focused on European countries that did not spend enough on defense. 
One of the problems that the UK has got is that the UK, by the by the NATO metric, you should spend 2% of your GDP on defence, and of that, of your defence spending, 20% should be equipment. By that metric, the UK gets a tick in the box, gets a tick in both boxes. Um, what that shows is that the metric is an incredibly poor way of assessing the efficacy of military spending. So two people have spoken this week, Grant Shapps, Defence Secretary, Sir Patrick Sanders, um, Chief of the General Staff. I would tell our listeners, listen to Sir Patrick Sanders. He's a professional. He's done this all his life. He's got nothing to be worried about because he's retiring in six months. He's therefore telling the truth. Grant Shapps is a poll. He won't be, you know, he may be around in a year, but we've got an election between now and then. But his job is to hold the fort. And he's not, his subject matter expertise is less than almost anybody listening to this podcast because he's been doing the job for a couple of months. Um, and all he's doing is saying, you know, oh, oh, he's being told, don't don't rock the boat. Listen to Sir Patrick Sanders. Um, I criticise Sir Patrick Sanders because what he's saying is everything that the regular army in Britain has done for the last 30 years was wrong, and we shouldn't have hollowed out our reserve. The regular army hollowed out the reserve that he now wants to rebuild. But, good for him, he recognises that we need to build or rebuild depth and that's going to be a huge job. And he dares mention the the word conscription, which is, you know, that's the third rail in um, actually politics of most Western nations, I would say, not just the UK. Um, right. it, fantastic. He's getting the st- subject uh, starting to be debated. And what's good about this is this now forces the next government to actually consider that in their defence review. And I think that is going to be absolutely uh, you know, fundamental to how the UK thinks about it. But um, the fact that we're thinking about the next government and the next defence review 18 months away, there's no sense of urgency because all the politicians are focusing on the election and there are no votes in defence. It's really depressing. Uh, it, it is indeed, and it's also very dangerous. Again, I commend the audience to check out uh, Sir Max's piece, uh, Weakened West is Sleepwalking Towards a New Era of uh, Conflict. Uh, and he does a tremendous job um making that historical case that the people in 1914 when they they knew better they knew a crisis was coming they didn't make the right kinds of investment uh in order to deter conflict and we've deluded ourselves that we can somehow reason with chinese and 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 uh russians uh indeed iranians as well as uh, north koreans Richard, just remind our listeners um uh, max hastings article is in the london times yes yes indeed Guys, that's all the time we uh, have for this week. But Ron, I think you had one residual point you wanted to make on Boeing before we go. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, a point I want to raise, and, and this is you know, Ron's view as opposed to kind of the investor view, which I, I highlighted before. What's Boeing got to do? I mean, they got to fix the production system. Um, you know, how do they do that? They got to work closely with their workforce, um, and and you know, re-energize the workforce and and make it a comfortable environment to kind of get that feedback. Management's got to be present for that to happen. Um, and these are probably two less popular points. And we've been hammering this home for a long time on, on this podcast, but they got to launch a new airplane. I think that's critical to the culture uh, for all kinds of reasons we've discussed. And this would probably be the most controversial point. Put someone from labor on the board um, right. because I think they can bring insights to the board that maybe that the board is missing today. Uh, I think uh, that's good advice and frankly would have uh, held the company in good stead, I think, uh, over a long period of time and avoided 
uh, you know, um, some challenges or at least listen to the company's engineers a little bit more closely uh, as well, unfortunately. Guys, thanks very much. Uh, terrific program as usual. Have a great what's left of the weekend, a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. And thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Uh, have a great day and we'll see you again uh, tomorrow for the Look Ahead program. Until then, have a great day.